Thanks for being with us. Uh, Just a bit of an update on Kennedy Stewart speaking today with a bit of an update on initiatives the city of Vancouver is taking when it comes to its fight on COVID-19. They have now secured several hotel rooms for people that need to self-isolate as well as they are bringing in commercial cleaning teams to go through many of the SROs in the downtown east side to make sure they are cleaned and to help stop the spread of the disease. We're going to talk a little bit more about that after the 1230 news today. So stick with us. We'll have more of those details coming up. Also coming up on the program, Mario Canseco with Research Co. has done a new poll on what Canadians are missing the most as many of us self-isolate and don't go out to heed the warnings and the recommendations, the orders to stay at home. We're also going to open up the phone lines and get your take on that. The CEO, the president of BC Ferries is going to join us at 1245 as well to talk about the reduction in service. You likely heard in the news that for 60 days, the route between Horseshoe Bay and Nanaimo will be suspended. We're going to talk about what else could possibly change with BC Ferries as we continue navigated COVID-19. So lots coming up on the program. We're also going to talk about correctional facilities. And Claire Allen has put together a really interesting piece about pets and COVID because there are still a lot of questions about that. Uh, But we start today with a rather sad story. On March 25th, not that long ago, Samantha Moncton was standing outside of the Harrow Park Centre in Vancouver, where inside her father Gary was a restaurant, uh, a restaurant, a resident. She couldn't visit. She couldn't take him to a restaurant. She couldn't go into the facility as she usually did because of COVID-19. No visitors, as we know, are being allowed into many, if not all, of the long-term care facilities. She hadn't seen him in weeks, but she knew at that time that he was one of more than a dozen residents who had already tested positive for the coronavirus. So outside, she picked up her trumpet and she played a few of the songs that she remembered singing with him when she was a child. This is the song and by the light of the silvery moon that my dad would sing to me when I would go to sleep. Just, yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, <laughs> remind him of the good times. Hey, Dad, listen up. <laughs> Well, a sad update. Gary Moncton passed away yesterday from COVID-19. His daughter, Samantha, joins me on the phone now. Hello to you and my condolences. Thank you. Uh, people first, uh, people who didn't know you before uh, probably got their first uh, introduction seeing you play uh, your trumpet outside the Harrow Park Centre. It was such a beautiful picture and a beautiful tribute. What was that like to, to stand outside and play the trumpet for your dad? Um, well, I know that it uh, brought a big smile to his face, and it brought also many to their balconies and windows. So um, it was it was really a, a good opportunity while we still could um, to bring that joy to their faces. And how did you come up with the idea to do to do that? Um, well, Dad knows me. We're a musical kind of family, and I used to play trumpet in high school, and I was like. Well, and I can sing, but I don't really want to do that. But <laughs> So I thought, well, the loudest thing I have is my trumpet. So I'm going to go down there and play some songs that he knows. And because um, I wasn't able to get into the facility, I hadn't seen him since March 14th. So I wasn't able to see him like at all. And he's blind, or he was anyway. Um, and so I knew that the hearing was like one of the best things he had left. And hearing me play was hopefully going to be... One of the joys that he had left, too. Absolutely. So how did you find out, or when you started doing that, did you know at that point uh, that your father yeah. had 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 COVID-19? Yeah, like, so we found out on the 17th, and that's when we had to, like, kind of self-isolate as well. Um, but I, like, I played a week later, because I was just like, well, this is frustrating. I can't go see him. This is crazy. I got to do something. I got to be able to reach out to him, because um, this, I don't know when I can see him next. Turns out, never, <laughs> you know. And, and what was it like then at that point? Because so many people are in the position where they have loved ones in long-term care facilities. They had they don't have the virus, but all of these 
protocols are now in place uh, that that stop visitors uh, for for obvious reasons. What was it like, though, knowing that not only was your loved one in that care home, but the virus had spread and and he was one of those in the facility? Well, at that point, like we we all just have to um, accept that this is a virus that's going to be around for a while, and we have to um, mitigate everything we can do to make sure that nobody gets um, affected by it. So, it was for me. It was like, well, I guess it's inevitable, but it, it did feel I felt chilled from it about learning of, that he had had it, but. I just know that all the care that is given to him through those the staff there, um, I knew he was going to be in good hands. So part of me was like, okay, but a part was like, okay, well, at least um, the Harrow Park staff are incredible. And I knew that he was in the hands of basically extended family. Absolutely. And so many people in that position right now are are depending on the staff in these care homes, not only to do what they've already been doing as far as looking after their loved ones, but now being that liaison, almost becoming their family. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, my heart goes out to them because they, they love dad just as much as I did. They were so sweet with him. And so when they had to call me, it was like hearing from my family telling me about dad. And it's affecting them, too. And I'm, I'm worried about them. And I love them very much. What was it like when you found out that, in, that your father had, in fact, passed away from this virus? They called me yesterday morning at one in the morning and told me, like, when I saw the phone, I knew it wasn't dad's line. It was their line. And it wasn't dad calling me to ask him to get him some ice cream, even though I live far away. <laughs> um, they they said what they said, and it was, um, it still doesn't seem real, quite frankly. It really doesn't. Uh, your dad, I understand, your dad was 78? 77. I was wrong about that. His birthday is next week. Oh. <clears throat> How would you describe yeah. him? He sounds like he was uh, a bit of a character. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he was definitely, he was, um, he was a very, not strict dad, but he definitely gave us, um, good guide guidance and he was a physiotherapist who worked his ass off every day for us, for our family and looked after us very well that way. Um, and him and mom were quite, quite the pair together and she left us seven years ago and he moved out here, um, so we could look after him. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he was just a real cornerstone in my life. Um, he was my num- number one guy. So it's, um, it's uh, yeah, it's starting to, starting to become a, a, a harsh reality. <laughs> How long had he lived at the Harrow Park home? Um, just since October. And did he like it there? Oh, he loved it there. I mean, he would go, my um, other, <clears throat> we basically like an adopted sister, Teresa, and Teresa and him would go to happy hour, and she'd take him for bingo and um, do some like lawn bowling, kind of indoor bowling. So he was active, and he was in the choir. So he had like a much better life when he was there because they cared for him. They, they made sure he was fed, and they just, the love was definitely better for him, you know, to have, a, have people around him all the time. Uh, we're being told uh, every day by officials to stay home if possible, limit our going out to even to get the essentials. Unfortunately, we're still seeing people who are not doing the physical distancing, who seem to be ignoring the rules. What do you say to people who still, for whatever reason, are not taking this virus seriously? Um well, I can't say that on air because it's mm. not polite, but, <laughs> mm. um, you know, like spread the word, not the virus, right? Stay home. Stop endangering the lives of frontline workers. Like that's that's what makes, because those folks are like so tense every time they go into work. I would feel like I was in, you know, shock every time I'd have to deal with that. But that's what they're doing every day. And we need to protect those people. They're protecting us. Because at the the Harrow Park Center as well, from what I understand, it was more more than two dozen staff members as well who have uh, tested positive uh, for COVID nineteen. Yeah, that feels like two dozen of my family. That's what it feels like. (laughs) I worry about every single one of them. Absolutely, and at this point, I'm guessing they don't know how it started, how it got into the the care care facility. Of course, no. I mean, and at this point, you can't really 
tell any of that. I mean, it just seems like it's quite a, um, it's a very prolific virus. It just decides, it decides for itself where it wants to go, you know? Hmm. Uh, I know you said you, you can't say exactly what you would like to say to people. Uh, do you think enough is being done? I mean, here you are, you've lost a yeah. loved one, you've lost your dad to this virus. Is enough being done, do you think, to fight the spread? I, I really have full confidence in uh, the minister and Bonnie Henry have been amazing. Like, uh, I feel confident when I see Trudeau talking about what they're doing um, and the money that's being put out to help people. I really do. I feel in the city is like doing great to to do whatever you can now in the downtown east side. Um, but uh, only time will tell. Really, it's the people who stay home and stop goofing around with this. Um, the social distancing and actually do it. That's the key, human behavior. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Sam, we'll leave it there again. My condolences for the loss of your dad. Are you going to keep playing the trumpet? You know, I was thinking about that. Um, I said to my husband yesterday, maybe I should go back and play another concert. He's like, are you sure? Mm -hmm. I'm like, but there's people still there. They're still, they need joy still. So, um, yeah, you might find me back out there. Um, It'll feel very strange looking at that window, knowing that he's not in there. But maybe maybe I can do that and bring more joy to folks who are still in isolation. All right, Sam, thank you again so much. <sighs> you bet. Well, as you just heard in the news, uh, the U.S.-based company 3M said earlier today it has been asked by President Donald Trump by the administration not to supply N95 masks and respirators to Canada amid the coronavirus pandemic, ordering the Minnesota-based company to produce and sell as many of the masks as possible in the United States. So what does that mean for the making and the supplies of those masks? Well, you might not have known that Nanaimo Harmack Mill is one of the places, if not the only place, where the supplies needed for those types of masks are developed. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Levi Sampson, the president at Harmack. Levi, thank you so much for being with us. Not a problem. How are you doing? Uh, very well. I know it's very busy for you, so thanks for taking some time with us. Yeah, no worries. Uh, so what exactly does your mill produce when it comes to these masks and gowns and supplies? Yeah, so we produce a type of pulp called K10S, and it's a western red cedar blend. And it's been kind of tweaked uh, over the years to be able to go into medical end uses. So our specific type of uh, pulp goes into medical fabrics, that uh, things like surgical gowns, masks, drapes, and caps. But uh, our uh, product does not go uh, to... Uh, 3M, and it does not go into the N95 masks. So those are more like uh, that kind of half-dome white masks that you see. Mm -hmm. uh, the mask that our product will go into would be like a medical fabric, similar to maybe what you would see patients wearing in a hospital, the kind of uh, more uh, fabric-y, papery looking masks. Sure. Yeah. And what has happened to the demand for that, for what you supply in the last couple of weeks? Right. So uh, we had our customer from the States double their order. Obviously, there's a real shortage of uh, medical supplies right now. And so that's one of the big reasons we decided to stay running is to uh, meet that demand. So we're currently working to fill that order, and then we will uh, make more product on top of that in case it's uh, needed. And so just so we're clear then, so your product doesn't go to 3M, but it does go to other manufacturers in the United States that make those other types of masks. Yeah, well, yeah, other type of surgical fabrics, like I said, it goes into surgical gowns, masks, drapes, caps, all those kind of things. And it, our uh, customer in the States, will they'll distribute throughout the state. And it's also my understanding that uh, some of that product winds back up in Canada as well. What was your response then when you heard that the president uh, was requesting or ordering 3M to stop producing any of these goods that would then leave the States? Yeah, I mean, again, we're not in the product that uh, that goes into those particular masks, but, you know, as much medical supplies as can be made right now uh, and help these shortages, we're all for. I mean, that's why we've decided uh, 
like I said, uh, make the decision to stay up and running and make as much as we can to fill the demand right now and, uh, you know, do our part. I mean, this is a global problem right now and wherever medical supplies uh, can be made, manufactured and uh, brought to the front lines is a good thing. Uh, because there's been a lot of call uh, for people in Canada that uh, were angered by what the president said today and, and calling for retaliation, uh, not suggesting that you would do this, but say if what you supply to other manufacturers for those other medical products in the States, what would happen to the manufacturing of those products if you just decided we're not going to send any of this product to the States anymore? Yeah, you know what, for for us, um some of this product, uh, we understand, is making its way back into Canada, so that's important. But you, we're still helping our neighbours to the south, and everybody's going through this. And if the if products can be made and uh, eventually make their way to the front lines where they're needed most, it, you know, we don't want to be in a position where we're saying, hey, we're going to stop making this product and cause a shortage somewhere. Uh, I just don't think that that's the prudent thing to do. Uh, and you mentioned, too, that, that you've seen this increase uh, in demand for supply, and that's why you've decided to stay open. Um, how have you done that as far as making sure that your staff is safe? Because I would imagine the working conditions with physical distancing, and that must be different. Yeah, so uh, to get a grasp of the size of a pulp mill, we actually sit on 250 acres of land. So these are mass operations. And so we're able to really distance our workers and have them be able to stay quite far away from each other while still being able to do their job safely. We've taken the precautions of sending anyone home that can work from home at this point is. Uh, we also have people going around uh, multiple times a day, disinfecting workstations, washrooms, all those kind of things. So we're really trying to keep everybody as safe as possible as of as much social distancing as possible. And if our managers or our superintendents need to have calls with their workers, it's all being done by phone at this point. And do you think you will be able to keep up with the fact that you have such uh, the product that you supply is is so necessary for those supplies that you you mentioned? Uh, we're seeing some places, New York City, uh, for example, some places where we're seeing a bit of a shift in the where we've been told there's no reason, no need to wear masks if you're out in public. There's a bit of a shift now with perhaps the public will be told to wear them. Uh, not that it stops you from being infected, but it would stop infected people from spreading the disease. If we move to a model where people are being told to wear these masks anytime they go outside. Do you think we'd be able to keep up with the demand? Yeah, I believe so. At least uh, uh, at our facility, we'd uh, we would shift to continue to run as uh, as much as uh, possible. We're not producing any more pulp than we usually produce. So there's a limit to how much pulp we can produce, but we're shifting to running that medical grade pulp. So there's five grades of pulp we produce at Harmac. They're kind of all similar to different recipes and they'll have different wood fibers involved in them. But if the demand uh, increased again, we would just produce more of that uh, specific kind of pulp, the K10S. And that, uh, that specific kind of pulp is only made at the Harmac mill in Nanaimo. And that, is that the only place in the world? It's the only place in the world that makes that specific pulp, uh, but there's other pulps that at uh, other mills that go into all sorts of different things, and uh, you know they could go be going into uh, medical supplies too. Uh, but they're just uh, they're all kind of like different recipes, but you do have to get obviously to be used as a medical uh, grade pulp. It has to you know go through rigorous testings and tweaking over the years. So I know that we've been running this product since before I joined the company when we became employee owned in 2008. So we've been running this product for quite some time. And do you have enough supply of the wood, the the Western Red Cedar chips, to keep the production going? We do at this point. Um, the Finding uh, fiber is uh, is always uh, an issue for, for pulp mills or finding affordable fiber, um, especially with the forest industry. It was hit really hard even before this uh, COVID-19 outbreak. And you had uh, companies down. Everybody knows the uh, Western Forest products had a prolonged strike um, just before this happened. Um, but right now we are able to find uh, enough uh, fiber to source this. All right. And do you think, do you anticipate then ramping up production or are you pretty much as, as ramped up as you can go? 
we wouldn't produce any more pulp, but we would produce more of this medical-grade pulp if the demand was there. All right. Well, thank you again uh, so much for joining us. Uh, I know, again, busy time for you, uh, but thanks for your time today and for doing that and for continuing to supply uh, much-needed uh, ingredients for that, those medical supplies. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I just say that, you know, for all our workforce and our men and women that are going in, we're uh, very proud of them. And people should be proud that there's a company in BC that's uh, contributing right now. Thanks for being with us. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, BC Ferries is making some pretty big changes and is reducing travel on some of the bigger routes. Talking about sailings between Horseshoe Bay and Nanaimo, those will be halted for the next 60 days as they deal with a big reduction in the number of people using ferries due to the COVID-19 crisis. Joining me now to talk a little bit more about this is BC Ferries President and CEO Mark Collins. Mark, thank you so much for being on the program. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, what was what led to the decision? I know it's been a there's been a huge reduction in use on that uh, ferry route. Is it also to deter people from using the ferries? No, the main driver here is our need to protect the health and safety of ferry workers. You know, they're out there uh, sailing back and forth on ships which are nearly empty, but nonetheless still exposed to the virus. And if the ferry workers get sick, we may have to shut down altogether. So our big driver is the health and safety of our frontline staff. In this very low traffic time, there's an opportunity to take out some of that capacity and protect the protect the workers. Uh, so, with the West Vancouver uh, ferry terminal to Vancouver Island uh, being halted for 60 days, is the idea then you'll reevaluate after 60 days? Yes, our, our service levels are determined by the Coastal Ferry Services contract with the province of British Columbia, and we're not allowed to go below those levels without their agreement in that contract. So, we've been working through an amendment to that contract to allow us to reduce capacity. That amendment uh, has a 60-day time period. If things are not improved as we approach the end of the 60 days, we'll sit down with the province and discuss the way forward. But the initial period is 60 days. Uh, How many people will be laid off, do you think? Well, it's a very tough day for BC Ferries because these are more than co-workers. You know, these are our friends. And uh, uh, we're looking at between 1,000 and 1,400 people will be affected by this. So it's a very difficult time for us. Absolutely. So 1,000 to 1,400 layoffs? That's right. And is there any, is, is this deemed essential service or is this, this is how you deal with it, the fact to, to go to the routes where there's still a lot of commercial traffic, which is deemed essential to keep goods moving, uh, but to, to go, to, as you said, to also protect the workers. Uh, is there a lower level of service that's deemed an essential service level? Well, uh, the the service levels that we need to stick to are defined in the contract. And what we've worked out with government for this extraordinary period is a, a reduction in the minimum levels. So, uh, as you know, the ministerial orders, which were issued uh, by Minister Farnworth uh, last week, do specify essential ferry service must be maintained. So really what the amendment to the contract does is define that essential level for us. And with these changes today, we're operating just above the minimum essential service. So we're, we're at about 50% reduction. The agreement permits us to go to 58% reduction, but we wanted to keep that little bit extra in there to make sure that you know, the cargo can move back and forth to Vancouver Island and the smaller communities. Uh, we are approaching Easter weekend. Uh, we've heard from the provincial health officer to please don't travel around the province, don't consider it or treat it like a normal long weekend, to stay home if possible. Uh, there are likely still going to be people who do that and uh, an increase in traffic. How do you keep workers safe if you're anticipating more people people will still be traveling on Easter weekend? Well, we're encouraging all people not to engage in non-essential traffic. That, that's for sure. We're working closely with the province and the health officers to be part of the solution. Um, on board the ferry and at the terminals, we've got in place all the physical distancing measures that, uh, that are necessary to keep our workers safe. We have physical barriers. We have space available. We're allowing people to remain in their vehicles on the car deck. Uh, we have announcements, signage, and procedures. So, We've got all of those measures in place. We're taking the health and safety of our workers very, very seriously. That's our number one priority. And then uh, with that in place, I think we can move those people that present themselves. But again, I, I, I say to folks, if it's not essential travel, you should not be on the ferry this weekend. Uh, is there anything else that could be done? Uh, you mentioned allowing people to stay in their vehicles. Uh, is there any uh, possibility that that could go even further in that people would be encouraged or told to stay in their vehicles? 
Uh, It's possible. It's always possible. You know, uh, again, in this uh, emergency situation, uh, the ministers of the crown, be it federal or provincial, have extensive powers. And uh, Transport Canada is looking carefully at ferry uh, safety across the country. We know there's active discussions in Ottawa about next steps. I know the provincial government and our ferry association have been working closely with Transport Canada. So there could well be new measures. But at the moment, we feel we've got effective measures in place and uh, we're going to be diligently applying them. And what about the smaller areas in that while we don't want it to spread anywhere and we're we're hearing and you you mentioned as well, people are being told, please stay at home this long weekend. Uh, It's much different, I would think, if you are seeing somebody, a case of COVID-19, say in Nanaimo or Victoria or Vancouver, that's much different than seeing it on a Gulf Island or on the Sunshine Coast. So are those routes being treated different in travel between those more remote areas? Not by us at present. We've consulted extensively with the province on on what should be our posture towards people who wish to travel to these communities. And, uh, you know, BC Ferries, we're we're not the border police. Uh, We're not putting up barriers. Our mandate is to carry the people who present themselves, while at the same time encouraging people to be responsible. Um, If, uh, you know, public policy should change and restrictions were come into force, we would naturally abide by those. But as yet, there's no actual, let's say, regulatory restriction on people's travel. And you mentioned at a 50% reduction, uh, the the level is 58. Uh, These are unprecedented times, though. Is there any chance that 58% number could change? It's always possible. You know, every day I come to work and uh, I'm, I'm faced with situations I never thought I'd be facing. This is such a fast-moving crisis. Uh, to use a marine term, we're in uncharted waters and uh, we, we just don't know what the future will hold. But uh, 50% is pretty deep and uh, we feel that uh, this should be good for now and we have to watch and see how it unfolds. Uh, do you know of any BC Ferries employees at this point that have tested positive or have contracted COVID-19? We have only one confirmed case uh, that was confirmed about uh, a week or 10 days ago. Uh, We have three or four cases which are presumptive and at our home self-isolating. But uh, by and large, our our staff has uh, been very healthy and we're grateful for that. So just one case and a few presumptives so far. All right. It's got to be stressful for workers, though, like you said, asking passengers that are still on the ferries for essential reasons or truck drivers that are that are making sure those goods get through. It's got to be stressful for workers uh, still doing that. Oh, absolutely. And I got to tell you, my heart goes out to them and I'm so impressed. I mean, this, this is nothing short of bravery. Uh, you know, this this is a, a new risk in the business that uh, or in the whole world and, and where you weren't built for it a month ago. Now we are getting set up for it. And our workers have very bravely faced this down and kept it going. You know, we we've missed only six sailings in the last month due to virus related issues. And when we do 400 and sailings a day, when you look at that really small number, I think it's a testament to the to the courage and the loyalty of ferry workers and to all of the other essential workers out there in British Columbia. I think they're doing amazing work. All right. We will leave it there. Mark Collins, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Mark Collins is the president and CEO of BC Ferries, uh, confirming that BC Ferries will be halting all sailings between Horseshoe Bay and Vancouver Island at least for the next 60 days. All right, we are going to shift gears a little bit and take a look at what is happening in correctional facilities in BC in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. And many people asking the question now, should nonviolent offenders be released from prison? Let's bring in Jennifer Metcalf, Executive Director at Prisoner Legal Services. Jennifer, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, do you have any updates as far as we know? Uh, there have been some cases or one uh, cases at the Okanagan Correctional Facility. Do you know of any other facilities at this point where we have seen people testing positive for COVID-19? Um, not in British Columbia, but I understand there was were some cases at the Toronto South Detention Centre and there have been some cases federally as well in Quebec and oh. Ontario, I believe. All right. What are you calling for then? What would you like to see specifically done at BC Correctional Facilities? Yeah, um, we've been calling for um, decarceration efforts of um, people who are um, considered to be nonviolent and safe to to be released into the community. Um, I guess, you know, prisons are contained units except for the staff who are coming and going. And so... um, Although BC Corrections has implemented a number of protocols to try to ensure people's safety, 
um, the reports that we're getting from our clients in custody in BC is that often staff are not following those protocols. And so the prisoners are extremely vulnerable. Um, We know that prisoners' um, status of health is poor compared to the general population in Canada. There are high rates of addiction and um, compromised immune systems among prisoners. The age of prisoners is getting higher, so there are a lot of um, people who are over the age of 50, which isn't old in the community, but for prisoners whose health is usually compromised, 50 is considered the cutoff for um, being considered an older person whose health might be compromised. Um, So we'd like to see the release of um, especially people in those categories that are highly vulnerable and what are you hearing so far, Fred? I understand uh, that the Ministry for Public Safety in BC is uh, looking at that, is doing a risk assessment for nonviolent people that are in prisons. Uh, what are you hoping? Is that enough or, or are you hoping for more? Um, yeah, we're, we're pleased with the efforts that have been made, um, but we are concerned that it's not going far enough. Um, yeah, like we need to see major decarceration. Right now, many provincial prisoners are double bunked, so they're sharing a cell with another prisoner. So when they're be to- being told to practice social distancing of keeping six feet apart, um, that's really impossible when the person in the bunk above you, you can reach up and touch their bed. So um, like it's really impossible to practice social distancing in prison. Um, as far as staff go, we're hearing reports that staff are going out um, on their breaks and coming back with Tim Horton, so they're not um, isolating in the community. Um, they're coming and going, and then um, we're hearing that they're not wearing gloves when they're um, conducting cell searches. So we had a client say that five officers were in his cell touching everything without gloves, and then he has to go back and live in it. Um, that. You know, prisoners aren't given hand sanitizer because um, the prison officials are concerned that some people might drink it because of the alcohol content. Um, But that's putting everyone at risk where they're not able to protect themselves that way. Um, Reports of people going into um, video rooms for bail hearings and things like that, um, where the room isn't being wiped down between people in the room. And so people are using phones that have been used by other people without them being wiped down. So we know that there have been direction to do things like cleaning surfaces more frequently, but the reports that we're hearing is that they're not they're not being done consistently. Uh, so wouldn't the solution, though, in, in many of those cases be to bring in more stringent cleaning, uh, a, a cleaning regimen, a commercial cleaning regimen to, to try and distance people and to fix that? Because the public response that I'm seeing in many cases to this is, well, aren't these people incarcerated for a reason? And just because there's a pandemic that's completely separate from this, why should they be released because of something happening in the world that has nothing to do with why they're in prison? Well, people didn't get a death sentence. Um, nobody in Canada gets a death sentence. Provincially, people are in for pretty minor charges. Their sentences are for um, crimes that would attract a sentence of less than two years. So um, I believe the majority of people in provincial custody are in on nonviolent offenses. Um, so when we're talking about the risk of, to people's lives being so high, um, it's sort of people have drawn the analogy of the cruise ships where um, people are in this contained environment where if the virus spreads, it's going to get out of control because staff are not confined to the prison. It's going to come back into the community. So it's really putting everyone at risk. Uh, and what about pretrial centers where there will be people who have been charged with violent crime that are being housed in pretrial? Well, I think at this point, the calls are not for people who are a safety risk to the community in terms of violence to be released, but by depopulating the prisons of people who can safely be released, it'll allow, it'll increase the safety of everyone. So people will be able to um, have a room to themselves instead of having to be double bunked and um, 
you know, it, just with fewer people inside, it will make it easier to practice safe social distancing and cleaning and all of those precautions. And for the people then, if this was to happen for uh, the low-risk, non-violent uh, offenders uh, that would be released, uh, is the call that they be released into the public? Because my guess is there would be issues then as well with family members. If they were going to stay with family, uh, there would be a risk there. Do they need to self-isolate, self-quarantine, or do they even have a place to go? Um, yeah, I guess, unfortunately, a lot of people don't have a place to go. So there have been um, parallel calls for increasing resources for people in the community to ensure that they have um, housing and places where they can go. Um, my understanding for the people who have been released is that they're um, they are to be confined in their homes. Um, so, you know, so far um, it has, there's been, the one case in um, the Okanagan Correctional Center, but these efforts need to happen before the virus um, gets out in the prison. So at this point, people are relatively safe to be following the same public health advice that um, people in the community are following by staying in their homes as much as they possibly can. Um, and then they might have conditions that, that would require them to stay in their homes. Um, if they're living with other people, then the advice is to not share washrooms and try to stay separate um, until 14 days have passed. So I would expect that the same rules would apply to prisoners. Right. Would you be okay with an idea, say somebody suggested uh, by releasing somebody early, uh, that the releases made, if that was the decision, that they wear a monitoring device when they're released into the community? Um, yeah, I mean, those those provisions are already available. So if there is a concern about someone's safety, um, then that's something that could be used that might um, help the public feel more comfortable with it. Well, it might seem like we've been doing social and physical distancing for longer than we actually have, but it hasn't really been that long. What we do know is it's going to be a while yet before we get to the other side of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, Mario Canseco at Research Co. has done a poll asking people at this point, what do you miss the most in this age of isolating and quarantine and staying at least two meters away from others, staying home if you can, not traveling, and the list goes on and on. Well, he joins us on the line now to go through some of the poll results. Mario, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, so you asked Canadians, this is right across the country, uh, many of whom are in their homes, not going out to because of COVID-19. Uh, you asked them what they miss. What are they missing? Well, the number one thing is uh, physical contact. You know, 45% saying they are finding it very hard uh, not to see family members in person, a little bit higher in Alberta than, than in the rest of the country, and 44% who are uh, finding it hard not to see friends in person. So the number one thing really is the ability to be meeting with somebody closer than two meters because of social distancing. Which isn't a, a huge surprise, uh, I think. Did you get the impression or did you ask people, is it the physical contact uh, such as the hugging or hand-holding or, or being that close or just being able to go over to someone's house or be around somebody and not have to worry how far apart you are? I think it's a combination of the two. You know, we do see a lot more Canadians who are saying that they're keeping in touch with family and friends, uh, essentially using uh, electronic tools. Uh, I think there's definitely a sense for many of us that we miss the opportunity to have that physical contact. You know, it might be uh, weeks or even months before we can shake somebody else's hand. So I think that definitely plays a role in the way we feel about things right now. And what about travel? Because that was one of the first things to really be curtailed and stopped. What about going to different places? Yeah, 41% of Canadians say it's been hard not to travel. You know, we need to remember that uh, some of these social distancing measures happened that right in the middle of March break. You know, maybe you were expecting to go somewhere else, visit family, visit friends, go abroad, go on a plane, go on a cruise. Uh, all of those changes uh, definitely affected you. And there's uh, two in five Canadians who are finding it difficult to be at home and not be able to travel when they probably were planning something. Absolutely. Uh, dining out, that's been another one. Uh, as uh, There is still takeout um, available in a lot of places, but that social part of dining out in restaurants, where did that come in on the poll? 
It's a big one, 38%. And what is interesting about this one is uh, there's not a lot of fluctuations within the country. You know, there's definitely a sense from more than a third of Canadians that they're dissatisfied with the fact that they can't uh, go out there and, and have dinner. You know, one of the things that we took for granted two or three months ago, and even one that we still continue to have for a little bit before social distancing guidelines became stricter. You know, there was a moment for about three or four days where health authorities were saying it's okay to go to a restaurant as long as you are uh, a little bit further apart from, from other people. Uh, now it's one of those that is gone. Not so in, in specific areas of the United States, mind you, but Canada definitely is observing this very, very religiously. Absolutely. Uh, what about other things, entertainment events? Yeah, concerts. You know, we just came back from the break listening to the Rolling Stones. They were going to play in Vancouver. Uh, now that's not going to happen anymore. 36% say that they miss the ability to go to the movies, to go to plays, to go to concerts. Younger residents obviously more likely to say that they miss this opportunity. But there's a third who say we need some sort of distraction. You know, when we've had all other uh, scenarios that are worrying a lot of people, we can go back to right after 9-11, for instance, or the start of the global financial crisis in September 2008, you still had that opportunity to entertain yourself with something that was outside of your home. We don't have that right now with COVID-19. No, uh, absolutely. Um, seems like there would likely be a difference then with people with children uh, compared to people that don't have children, young children, in that isolating and staying, especially if you have a small space, is, I would find, I would think, much more challenging than if you don't. Well, and it has been challenging for parents. You know, we heard from 44% of those who have kids at home saying that it's been hard to coincide all day with their kids. Uh, maybe they were planning some camps, maybe they were planning some activities, or there's always the opportunity to have play dates, to do something, to go to a specific area where you can assemble and have your kids play. Uh, it's been hard on kids, but we do see that there's 44% of Canadians with kids at home who say that this has been difficult as well. Uh, you also ask people what they're doing instead. And it's uh, amazing, I think, how quickly we've adapted to having virtual happy hours or virtual meetings. And that probably something uh, people who have long distance relationships or family in other parts of the world are used to doing to keep connected. But we've really adapted to doing that with somebody who might just be a few streets over. Absolutely. I think there's definitely a sense from Canadians uh, who maybe are new to this because they haven't been in touch with other people through electronic means. Uh, I think there's definitely a situation now where you got used to this. Certain terms that we all knew about, uh, such as Zoom, for instance, now have become a little bit more of a norm. And there's definitely an increase in the amount of electronic entertainment. 41% of Canadians who say they are uh, doing stuff on their smartphones or entertaining themselves with a gaming console, and 40% who are streaming more content. So that opportunity that you maybe had to binge watch a specific show and you couldn't because of work of, or, or other things, uh, now, is t now is the moment to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, did you find a difference in age, though? Because that's something I found interesting and a lot of posts on social media, people uh, of a certain age saying, uh, this, sound, this feels familiar because when we were kids, we never went out to dinner. It was a treat to go out for dinner. We had dinner as a family around the table every day. There was one TV that you had to all agree or not to one person in the household would say, this is what we're watching, if you want to watch it or not. And some saying, I, I was wondering why this feels so familiar. It's because this is how I grew up. There is definitely a generational gap when it comes to streaming. Uh, there's 57% of Canadians aged 18 to 34 who are doing this more often. It drops a little bit with Generation X to 40% but only 22% for Canadians over the age of 55. Now, that doesn't mean that millennials are only interested in electronics. There's 34% of them who are reading more than they did before COVID-19. The numbers are actually lower with people aged 35 to 54 and 55 and over. So there's been a little bit of a change, uh, but it's not always related to electronics. There's a moment where you get tired of it, grab a book, grab a board game. A lot of people are doing that, and it's mostly younger uh, uh, Canadians who are more likely to say that this is now part of their daily routine, certainly more so than it was back in January. I find that interesting, too, especially the board games and the puzzles, because either you knew this was happening or you saw the isolating coming and you ran out and you got them, or you're somebody that happened to have them and have them in your house, And which I find interesting. Why did you have the board games and the puzzles if you weren't using them before there was a pandemic? <laughs> Exactly, right? It's one of those things that is happening more now. 29% of those 18 to 34 are saying, I am engaging in entertainment activities that don't involve electronics, you know, board games, puzzles, that type of situation. 
the place in the country where it's lowest is in Atlantic Canada at 12%, but it climbs to 21% here in British Columbia. So time to look into those old board games and make sure that all the pieces are there before you start playing. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, one other question. You also looked at uh, religion, and that was one of the first things. I still remember being at the Saturday news conference with Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, saying, tomorrow, consider a virtual gathering rather than going to church. And it was really early on, and I remember we kind of looked at each other and thought, well, that's weird. That's strange. We've never actually ha- heard that direction before. Now it seems like the norm. But are people still being involved in religion? Yes, it's interesting to see that there's 25% of Canadians who have a religion or who consider themselves religion, uh, re- religious, sorry, uh, who are praying more often. Uh, those who are praying more often, women at 29%, uh, millennials at 36%. Uh, but also, and this was quite striking, if you're in the highest household income, you're more likely to be praying. So maybe a lot of people looking at the markets and trying to get some sort of direction from above <laughs> when it comes to what is going to be happening. Only 8% of those who are religious are saying that they are actually praying less often. So uh, the fact that we don't have those gatherings anymore, going to the temple, going to church, uh, is making a lot of people find religion at home the same way they, that they're finding other stuff that they used to do outside, such as exercising. All right. Interesting findings. Uh, Mario, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again. Definitely, Jill. Thank you. All right. Thanks for being with us today. Here's a bit of a strange idea, but could it work in the city of Vancouver? Some other places have tried out where the traffic is already reduced because of COVID-19. Tried out perhaps using those spaces to encourage exercise, to encourage people to physically distance and still be able to get a bit of fresh air and exercise. So would it work in Vancouver to take some of the streets that aren't being used or some of the areas that aren't being used by traffic or what they're normally used for and make it into an exercise type area. Well, let's bring in Sandy James, city planning consultant and managing director, Walk Metro Vancouver. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. How are you? Uh, Very well. How about yourself? Doing okay. Had my walk this morning. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, What is this idea then? Would it be to actually take streets that aren't being used and shut them down to traffic or other parts of the city and make them bigger open spaces for people? Well, Jill, in the mid-1990s, there was a group called the Urban Landscape Task Force, and they were a group of citizens in Vancouver that saw that as Vancouver was developing, we weren't really looking at good routes for walking and cycling. And there actually is developed 140 kilometers of city streets, and they're set up like pearls on a string. They go through and connect parks, shops, schools, and, of course, parks have the restrooms. And they actually go uh, border to border, east to west and north to south across the city. Uh, Ontario Street is one of them that goes uh, straight across. Now, all these streets already have traffic calming because walking was to be the number one priority. They all have sidewalks. Each sidewalk has a curb drop or a ramp so that if you have a wheelchair or you're wheeling a buggy, you can get down. There's wayfinding along them, public art. Um, The city actually had planted some. There's boulevard plants in some places and benches, but they were they were designed to be between arterials and provide people another way of moving and connecting without using main streets. Uh, do you think that that is something that could be used now? Because one of the arguments against this would be it might send a mixed message in that we're being told to stay home unless you need to go out. Would this not encourage people to come out? Well, our, our medical health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, says that if she's actually encouraging walking or if you're in a wheelchair, rolling for exercise for mental and physical health. But she's also cognizant, and we are as well, that people need to stay six feet or two meters apart and to stay in their small family groups. Now, one of the challenges if you're living in downtown or you're in an area that's dense with apartments is that our sidewalks just are not wide enough. Our city standard is, 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 is for new construction is 1.8 meters. And if it's a two-meter distance, you're, you're actually, and I am, going off into traffic um, just to, to keep that safe distance between myself and someone else walking. So the whole idea of closing these streets or offering them temporarily on weekends or in the evenings is to allow people to be able to do the exercise and also um, maintain the physical distancing. And the whole point is it's exercising, not socializing. 
Uh, interesting, and, and I've noticed that too. And when I've I've gone out for for exactly that reason to get a bit of fresh air to take the dog out, even when it's uh, really early in the morning when it's not as busy, uh, I find myself walking down the street because there is somebody on the sidewalk. And you're right, you can't do the physical distancing on the sidewalk or on the seawall or or those places. Uh, so, how feasible would it be then to actually take some of these streets or these these greenways and shut them down and let people know these are now shut down to vehicle traffic and they're only only for people who need fresh air and can physical distance. You know, we have a really good uh, new city engineer. His name is Lon LeClaire, and I believe he's a champion in North America in terms of the work he's already done. But we, we, we already have this network, um, as, as, as does happen in the last 10 years with Vision, uh, the last council, we, we, there was more of an emphasis on bikeways as opposed to talking about the greenways. So they all exist, and taxpayers have paid for them. And they currently, if you're going on them, one, for example, is 37th Avenue that connects Pacific Spirit Park straight down to Central Park and Burnaby. And it already is traffic calmed. So it would be very easy to put signage up. Um, the city has bylaw staff, if it's needed, that can um, uh, help people if they were doing some wayfinding across major intersections. But it's, com- it's completely feasible. But one of the challenges is that the, if taxpayers need to know that it's there and it's paid for, and um, the fact that it exists, and we need to let council know that um, these can easily be, clean, be, be closed down to provide that kind of option for people. And what we know about walking is that it's a great, great help for mental and physical health, and also even just a small daily walk of 15 minutes a day um, mitigates up to 41 different types of disease. So we know it's good for you. But at the same time, and like you said, yes, Dr. Bonnie Henry is saying we should get fresh air and that's very important, but she's also saying to stay in our own communities and not to go to other communities. And it almost seems like something that links all of these different parts of the city together would be the opposite of that. Well, the the intent is that you and I would probably not walk straight from Pacific Spirit Park over to Central Central Park, Uh, but we would probably be along one section of that greenway or a section of one of the 14 greenways in the city, and that allows you to get out for 15 or 20 minutes and know that you can, you can walk and maintain your physical distancing. So I think that is the intent. Now, what they've done in Calgary um, is they, they have actually closed streets that are close to the river valley where people were already walking, but the trails were getting so crowded because if you're in Calgary and it's a sunny day, you want to get out right away after the winter they've had. Uh, and so their intent was to provide that opportunity. And those, those streets are also located close to high-density areas. So people have the option to quickly get on for a 10 or 15-minute walk. Uh, so do you think it's feasible? Is it something or is it, is it something that's just being talked about or looked at as an idea right now? Or could this actually be something, if we see these measures continuing for months, is it something we could see in Vancouver? I think it's something that's entirely feasible. I think in the memory of the city, People may have forgotten that the money and the taxpaying money has been put in to develop this network. It's a perfect time to open those streets for pedestrians and for cyclists. And it was just be an opportunity for people to get out. So it's entirely feasible. But residents need to talk to their city councillors about the importance of it. And certainly like you, when I'm on the street, I'm quite uncomfortable if I'm with a family member and have to go out in the middle of the street. I feel comfortable doing it by myself. But we really need to have places where we can exercise if um, the COVID-19 is going to be more than a few weeks longer in terms of of staying inside small spaces. All right. Uh, We will leave it there. It's an interesting idea. And as you said, uh, something that's been tried, being tried in some other cities as well. Sandy James, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jill. All right. Uh, Sandy is a city planning consultant and also managing director of Walk Metro Vancouver. I want to get your take. What do you think of this idea? If you don't live in Vancouver proper, maybe there are places where you are in the Metro Vancouver area as well. Do you think it's a good idea or are you concerned this would simply encourage more people to get outside? And as we've seen, unfortunately, the last couple of weekends that we've had nice weather, uh, people in many cases were not socially and physically distancing. And if you're on the seawall in Vancouver, as soon as there's three people, you can't. It's absolutely impossible, especially if you're going in two different directions. 
A lot of people responding to my uh, call earlier when I said I'm hoping one of the things that stays from this is an end of handshaking because I can't stand handshaking and I would much prefer the elbow bump. A lot of people have some passionate remarks about that, which I will share with you later on this half hour. But want to shift gears a little bit because there are also a lot of questions about pets and many people in Metro Vancouver throughout this province have pets. We consider them part of our families and a lot of confusion over whether or not dogs and cats or other pets are at any risk of contracting COVID-19 or a form of the virus. And if they do, what we need to know as humans to deal with that. Well, CKNW contributor and dog lover Claire Allen poses some of those questions to Dr. Lauren Adelman of Canada West Veterinary Specialists. Take a listen. The COVID-19 pandemic has created a lot of uncertainty for people. We're worried about interacting with our family, with our friends, but what about interacting with our pets? Recently, there has been a lot of concern about if COVID-19 can infect our pets. So what should we do to keep our furry friends safe? For that, I turned to an expert. My name is Dr. Lauren Edelman. I am an internal medicine specialist at Canada West Veterinary Specialist. I think there's been a lot of fear and uncertainty surrounding the role of COVID-19 in pets, and there is limited evidence that animals can be infected, but the risk does not appear to be zero. So there are reports of two dogs and now actually a cat in China and one cat in Belgium that did test positive for COVID-19, but of those animals, only the cat in Belgium showed symptoms. So in all of those cases, infected people were believed to be the source. So in other words, human to animal transmission. Hundreds of other animals have been tested thus far without positive results. So although possible, the risk does appear to be low. So pets can get COVID-19, but can they transmit it to humans? Even if pets can become infected with COVID-19, there's a difference between being infected and infectious. So currently, there is no evidence that pets can transmit the disease back to humans, and the greatest risk of infection is still by far from contact with infected people. What if a person who is infected with COVID-19 pets your cat or dog? Can the virus live on your pet's fur? The question of whether or not virus can live on the fur is one that's getting brought up and is a concern to us as veterinarians. It's a reasonable concern, and contamination could certainly happen. But we really don't know how long the virus might survive on a hair coat, so maybe hours. Uh, The risk of exposure through contact with a contaminated hair coat is pretty much theoretical at this point. So if you're concerned about the risk of your pet carrying the virus on its fur, Dr. Edelman advises taking extra steps to wash or wipe down your pet's paws after being outside. Definitely hand washing is still the main way we can minimize potential risk, but there are additional measures like bathing, wiping down animals, make sure to use a pet-friendly product. The benefit of this is purely theoretical at this point, but as long as you're using stuff that's safe for pets, I don't think it's wrong to you know, bathe them or wash their paws when you bring them back in from outside. There are a lot of unknowns right now, but Dr. Edelman recommends some simple steps for pet owners to limit any potential spread of COVID-19 from pets. In terms of what you know, owners can do to limit any spread with pets, although there's no evidence that pets play a significant role in human disease, just out of an abundance of caution, it is recommended right now that people who are sick with COVID-19 limit contact with both people and animals until more information is known about the virus. So essentially, if you have symptoms, if you're self-isolating, you should really follow similar recommendations around animals as you would around people. Um, so ideally, have another member of the house care for the pet or someone else entirely, and they should be kept away from other people and animals. And, you know, if the pet does need to be in your house, you should practice basic hygiene measures, hand washing before and after handling pets, their food or supplies, and definitely avoiding kissing, licking or sharing food with them. Just like humans, pets will experience emergencies during a pandemic, which are unrelated to the virus. Dr. Edelman says veterinarians have implemented protocols to ensure the health and safety of their staff while still helping animals in need. Really happily, last month, uh, veterinary care was declared an essential service by the government of British Columbia. And while most veterinary practices are open, we have been encouraged to limit the scope of our practice to urgent and emergent cases. 
And that allows us to keep seeing those patients that need us the most during this time while minimizing risk and exposure to staff and also conserving personal protective equipment, which we know is really, you know, we're having a shortage of right now. So at Canada West, that specialist, like many other hospitals, clients are no longer permitted to enter the hospital. Um, just our furry friends are coming inside. So all patients are collected outside by a team member in, in personal protective equipment and are examined by the veterinarian while the owners wait in their cars. And we don't bring in any personal items um, while the pet's hospitalized. And all subsequent communications are done either via phone or video. So Inside the hospital, we have created at Canada West um, an isolation ward for pets that do come from high-risk homes. And we're also practicing social distancing, wearing masks, and obviously increased our routine infection control measures like hygiene, cleaning, and disinfection. Now, um, if, a, if you do have an emergency, know that we are still open. Most veterinarians are still open. Uh, Canada West is the largest referral center in BC, and we do have a uh, dedicated intensive care unit staff 24 hours a day. So during the crisis, all of our specialty departments are open, but we're only servicing emergent and urgent cases. If your pet needs to see a veterinarian during this time, Dr. Edelman recommends calling ahead to your vet clinic to ensure they're able to see your pet. For AM980 CKNW, I'm Claire Allen.